Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's September 9th. 1950, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was on this day that the now-forgotten comedian Hank McCune won himself a place in the footnotes of TV history by starring in the first sitcom to rely on a pre-recorded laugh track. McCune was a former radio comedian who even at the time was not especially famous but this was 1950 when TV executives were trying to work out who should fill up these schedules so a lot of random people were being given their own self-titled programs. The review from Variety at the time really focused on the addition of canned laughter and so it said in the review although the show is lensed on film without a studio audience there are chuckles and yokes dubbed in. Whether this induces a jovial mood in home viewers is still to be determined but the practice may have unlimited possibilities if it's to spread to include canned peals of hilarity, thunderous ovations, and gasps of sympathy. But that angle on it isn't a surprise from the trade rag variety, is it? Because if you're reading that and you're a Hollywood mogul trying to get one of these cut price comedians onto your TV network, you want the cheaper setup. And it was cheaper to make a show without a studio audience, obviously. Not just because you didn't have to pay for a larger studio and have an audience researcher and look after the general public. Uh, but also because you didn't have to use multi-cameras back in the days when each camera came with a camera operator and was expensive in itself. Mm. You could film it all with one or two cameras multiple times because you didn't have to keep entertaining the audience. Yeah, and it wasn't until I Love Lucy in 1953 that was the first multi-camera sitcom. And so that obviously meant that you could do scene after scene in kind of like a play. You didn't have to keep stopping to move your one camera around and you didn't have to keep doing loads of retakes, which obviously would make live laughter dry up pretty quickly so this first wave of tv sitcoms they were all single camera format and so having a pre-recorded laugh track was the only way to make it work because a live studio audience wasn't going to give you the laughs you needed with that single camera format yeah actually just before we go any further can we just clear up the confusion that there is between studio audience laughter and canned laughter because the terms are sometimes used interchangeably and that confusion i think has only accelerated in the world we're in now where most sitcoms don't look like sitcoms at all. They don't have laughter tracks of any sort. So some people now, when they watch classic sitcoms, even from only 25 years ago, assume that the laughter is somehow all fake that they're watching. So if you're watching Friends or Faulty Towers, the laughter you're hearing is not canned laughter. That is real studio audience laughter. It is generated by the people there. There was an audience of people watching it. That's their laughter. Sometimes it is accessorised with a little bit of extra laughter that was recorded on the night because a joke is not particularly funny. And so they get the warm-up artist to ask that audience to laugh at nothing. And then they'll sprinkle that across the edit in places where their reaction was not up to snuff. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's the sound of people who were there in the audience. Whereas canned laughter, what we're talking about here, like on The Muppet Show, to give an extreme example, is entirely fake. Like the audience you're hearing yeah. were not there. There was no audience there. 
and it was added later as a sound effect. That's what we're discussing. And The Muppets is a really good example of the fact that by the 60s and 70s, we'd become so kind of comfortable with the idea that there'd be a laugh track uh, set against whatever comedy we were watching, that we were happy to watch things like The Flintstones or The Jetsons, like animated cartoons or The Muppets, which is obviously (laughs) not real performers but we were happy to have that same effect of people laughing around us superimposed on those shows there's no way that they could have been filmed in front of an audience but we accepted in our brains that we were having reactions as if there were people around us laughing along with us well you may have done arian i remember as a child being <laughs> mystified i remember as a child thinking like the muppet shows a parody of light entertainment variety show so i understand why there's an audience noise but why is there a laughter track on the Flintstones? Well, I suppose the Flintstones is a parody yeah. of a 1960s sitcom, so let's leave that one to one side. Why is there a laughter track on Top Cat? Like, I always okay. thought that was weird. <laughs> it's just obviously yeah. like a drawing. I knew that when I was six. <laughs> but part of the reason that people got used to them so quickly, I mean, we deride them now, they seem a bit cheesy to us from our perspective looking back. But part of the reason that they did become so accepted so quickly was because they were extremely well constructed. It was a TV sound engineer at CBS called Charlie Douglas who invented what he called the laugh box. It was a three foot tall machine that he made out of parts of vacuum cleaners and other random things. (laughs) It had a keyboard style control pad, almost like a mixing deck, Mm. which enabled Douglas to mix over 320 individual audience reactions that he had recorded on tape. And he blended them. He could intensify them. He could dull them down. He was a real genius. And he put together a lot of the laugh tracks that were used for decades after. Like there are people whose hobby is basically studying these old laugh tracks and they can pinpoint the same audience member who might have been recorded in the 1950s by Charlie Douglas. They're still laughing, you know, well into the 70s and 80s. And apparently he managed to retrieve most of that laughter, initially anyway, from the pantomime segments of the Red Skelton show. I read that and it meant nothing to me. So I went on YouTube to see what that looked like. And the reason it's called pantomime is because it's like Mr Bean, it's physical comedy. The sketch that I found on YouTube was Red Skelton pretending to be a guy in a movie theatre eating ice cream. And the joke is, you know, every time he jumps from the horror movie, he gets ice cream down himself. And the audience are absolutely wetting themselves with laughter. But of course, there's no noise from the performer Mm. because the sound that's being recorded is just the audience laughing. So it made sense in those days to just isolate that track and all the laughs that you could hear across all those Charlie Douglas sitcoms in the 1950s were things he'd taken from silent comedy, basically. And apparently this canned laughter even predates TV slightly because the technology first became available in the late 1940s. That was the first time you had pre-recorded radio shows. You know, before that, all performers had to do them live, sometimes, you know, twice because there would be an East Coast and a West Coast version. But this new technology brought the possibility of editing out flubs, but also dubbing in sound. So supposedly Mm -hmm. the first time canned laughter was used was on the Bing Crosby show. They had a comedian who did a segment where he told some off-colour jokes. And obviously that had to be cut from the broadcast itself. But a couple of weeks later, one of the writers said, you know, this week's show is a bit lacklustre. Have you still got those cut laughs? Can you dub them in? And that was done as, as a one-off. But that was what was called, like, as you were saying earlier, Ollie, that's what they call sweetening, when you take the live reactions and you bulk them up a bit. It wasn't quite, you know, a whole fake thing. It was interesting that as the idea of having uh, fake laughs against uh, real action or even sometimes animated action, as it spread around the world, one Latin American solution was to employ these people who are called reyadores, which means 
literally laughers. They were like these professional laughers who would go along to either shows or studios and do the appropriate laugh to match the appropriate moment. And I love that idea as a sort of clever <laughs> solution. But isn't the truth, if you've ever been to a live studio recording of anything, that even though you are not being paid to be there to laugh, actually, especially because you're not being paid to be there to laugh because you've normally got a free ticket, you feel like you are. Like, I, I very mm. rarely issue genuine laughter whilst watching a recorded thing because you know that your job when someone says something funny, particularly in a chat show or something, you know, Jamie Oliver will make an off-colour comment about a knife. If you're watching at home, you'd sort of go like, huh. But in the studio, yeah. you feel obliged to go, <laughs> And, and that's the point of it, really, isn't it? Yeah, the whole point of canned laughter or any other reaction, you know, the oohs and ahs that you would sometimes get on the properly cheesy sort of 80s sitcoms, mm. it is supposed to cue you as to how you're supposed to feel. But this practice goes back even further than, than the uh, Reodoris. This goes back to ancient times. There are accounts of people <laughs> being paid to go to plays and clap wildly. And this never really went away. In fact, in France in the 17th century, this developed into official guilds of clappers, laughers and criers for hire. And by the 19th century, you could hire them. If you were a theatre manager, you could hire them. There were agencies where you could hire people to start off these audience reactions. You know, women weeping into their handkerchiefs. And this is mm. a crazy thing. The Bolshoi Ballet still employs these people who are called claqueurs, or they belong to That's claques. That comes fact. from the French for applause. They're not hired by the theatre anymore. They're basically working in league with individual ballet performers. They're kind of playing on their artists' insecurities. So oh, lots great. of these prima ballerinas, etc., will have assigned people. They'll have a few people who they secure them free tickets, basically. And they go along mm. and they are passionate ballet fans. So they're not entirely faking it. It's more like giving your obsessive fans free tickets. So they know that when they do their special pirouettes and flips, etc., someone will start this wild cry of bravo, bravo. It's still, it still goes but I've on. done that at Edinburgh Festival. I mean, I've gone to like youth <laughs> hostels and given a load of students 20 free tickets to come and see a show because you know that they're going to be grateful and or drunk and that will help the atmosphere. <laughs> and make your pirouettes go down better. <laughs> tomorrow listen mate you're not being nicked because you were driving too fast it's because you were drunk love the show support the show patreon.com slash retrospectors part of the acast creator network